Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork, Five Good Questions podcast. And as we draw to the close of 2022, we thought it would be fun to maybe take a different approach with the last uh, few episodes. Uh, as you know, if you listen to the show, if you listen to the first 27 episodes and heard our first 27 guests, we always pose the, the same last question. The exit question is, what do you see coming uh, down the road? What the future may hold for Asia's food systems and maybe in the light of something positive, whether it be technology development or something um, that may be realized in the, in the future that will be positive result for Asia. So we thought it'd be fun to take a compilation uh, look at that. So each of these episodes you'll be listening to to close the year, we'll hear from uh, those various guests and, and their insights on what the future may hold. So sit back, relax, uh, enjoy this compilation again of our previous guests. And, and again, from all of us here at uh, Asia's Farm Report, five new questions. Happy holidays to everyone. I look forward to continuing the conversation in 2023. Well, in the positive area, uh, my one major megatrend, there are others if you want to get into it, but my one major megatrend is that we know that we're going to be in that 9 to 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, which means we've got to just about double food production. And of course, we want that to be nutritious, healthy food production for uh, children and adults around the world. Well, I don't think there's any other way than to improve productivity, improve and adopt innovation to get there. I mean, there have been naysayers and productions like Malthus's theory that suggest that we would, we would have run out of food a long time ago, but it has always been innovation that has bailed us out and allowed for those additional people on the planet to at least uh, be fed. Now there's logistics issues, there's insects, pestilence, all that. But if you took that aside, there is and has been enough food for, uh, for the people. And that will continue. So if you believe that there is going to be the nine to 10 billion, and if you are serious about meeting the sustainable development goals by 2030, and I'll extend it by 2050, since that's our marker out there, innovation's going to have to be a part of it. Now, I'm not here to dictate to any one farmer, any one person, any consumer, any government what they should do. But what I am here to say is, please, please don't be complaining about the lack of food, the inability to produce food, and then at the same time be rejecting the very gift that can deliver on that promise. Our own farm has seen, you know, 10, 20-fold increase in productivity and I'm very proud of that because our farm is producing a lot of the feedstocks that goes around the world to feed chickens, cows, pigs, uh, dairy, or beef and dairy. And, and I'm very proud of that. But I know that many parts of the world, you have groups that just deny that. And that's what we saw early on. If you go back and read those five action tracks, there was a complete silence on a lot of the uh, innovative techniques and the commitments that industries around the world had advanced. So I am bullish that we're going to get there, but boy, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult row to hoe right now just because the voices are so shrill, and I hope that will change. That was the Honorable Ted McKinney, former Undersecretary at the USDA. Next up, Dr. William Chen from NTU. Uh, I would say that with this, uh, really everyone is feeling the impact of COVID-19, right? Not just for food, but also for health. I think in, in the coming years, with a higher level of uh, awareness of this uh, impact on these external factors, uh, we will see that uh, there will be a collective effort to develop a locally-based food security and enhance the food system. 
for a small country like Singapore, we see a sort of development of urban farming, for example, with a, a new alternative food sources, which we don't see very much in the in the past. Doesn't mean that we should not do it. For example, we talk about a mushroom farming or protein-rich microalgae farming. Let's just to show some example. Another example is cultivated meat or seafood. I, I, I would not say it would take us 20 years to reach. We, we can't tell in 20 years what the food system will, be, will look like. What I can say is that for the agricultural uh, food exporting countries, they may look at the different source of uh, crops uh, which are available in the in the region of the country. One example is these uh, underutilized crops like uh, bambara groundnuts. These are not the industry skill monoculture type of crops, but they are equally nutritious. It's just that we have not explored the full potential in the nature. Actually, to summarize what I see in five or ten years' time, I would say that the urban farming combining with uh, the push for alternative food sources will see a broader spectrum of choices for consumers. So with a wide spectrum of choice for consumers, I think uh, we collectively can actually address these uh, challenges of the food system in years to come. That was Dr. William Chin at NTU. Now we hear from Alex Prokofsky at Syngenta. Yeah, well, I might appear a bit trivial here, but uh, I, I do believe that ecosystems, digital ecosystems, would change the market. It's something which we could not even think of the past, reaching growers at scale. Uh, and even as, as Syngenta is our company, we've been you know, in, in Asia for almost 100 years, side by side with farmers, helping them to increase their yields, improve the quality of their produce. But it's been always difficult to reach scale. It's been really challenging for us to get to a meaningful number of growers to make a bigger difference. And that's what's becoming possible now. We can share our knowledge at scale. We can share our technologies at scale, thanks to these platforms. And, and we can really bring the, the stewardship programs. We can educate farmers towards the more sustainable agricultural practices. And it's not only us. It's all market players, right? We talk about uh, fertilizer companies. We talk about financial institutions. You know, they have so many farmers in the region, but all would have access to, to farmers. And I think it, it is a major, it is a major change. But also maybe a second element when we talk about digital solutions, it's also digital practices, precision farming, for example. You know, you see already now in many countries, Japan, for example, farmers are using drones for planting, for uh, usage of uh, fertilizers or crop protection products. And in the, in the environment with the shortage of labor, it is extremely, extremely critical. So it, because it, it, it addresses all the questions, uh, and again, it helps to increase yields in a more environmentally friendly way. So I, I think digital solutions would really bring agriculture in Asia to a different level. And I think it is our responsibility to to support companies, support smaller companies, to invest, to invest internally and externally, to build partnerships, to connect all the value chain players together. I think collaboration between all would be really critical. These days, no way one company can, can solve it. It is a complex world as we, as we talk. We have a huge pace of, of change and it's, it's really important to act together and address holistic needs of, 
local farmers. That was Alex Burkowski at Syngenta. Next, we hear from Suryan Bichelokarn with Mekong Institute. Just before answering the, the question, I would like to revisit uh, a few things. One is that we are experiencing a more uh, diverse uh, issue and challenges in agriculture. Yeah? Extreme climate event, more stringent market and trading requirement, aging farmers. So all of this point out to the fact that we cannot uh, practice agriculture, producing food in the way we do in the past anymore. You know, if you look at how the market has been evolving uh, over the past few years, particularly during the um, COVID-19, the digital application, digital uh, platform, e-commerce now started to come in. If I was to see how uh, five or 10 years from now, we need to really work something out, not as an option, but as a way to really survive and making sure that we can continue to support farmers, I think it will be the uh, wider adoption of innovation and technology. This is basically to address all those issues and challenges I explained. And it's not only to make technology innovation available, we need to work on a viable business model that can create scale. So that farmers will have access to technology that are applicable to their available resources and capacity. Because farmers, we need to tap on uh, a good production inputs, farming technology, helping them, whether they can really access to the use of machinery, whether, you know, uh, harvesting method and so on and so forth, even uh, access to market the digital uh, digitalization, digital tool and platform, all of this. I think uh, if we are not able to catch up and find way of, uh, you know, developing a viable, scalable business model to support farmers' adoption of innovation of technology, I think it will be quite difficult for us. Uh, and there will be more and more farmers are losing out from the agriculture we will not, no longer be able to attract and engage younger generation, farmers, rural community. So just to uh, see in the five, 10 years from now is a very robust, viable business model that can facilitate adoption of innovation of technology. To me, this is the only way to continue to meet the demand of the market and trading requirement at the same time addressing all various challenges and issues I named earlier. That was Suryan Vichelokarn from Mekong Institute. Next, we hear from Dr. May Chochoi with the Asian Pacific Seed Association. I look in through that, I see the crystal ball as a world and I see everyone connected through by using digital uh, information. We have a great big data, you know, the farmers understand and be able to prepare about what do they need to, you know, do before the, the climate is changed or before the, the weather is it's fluctuated. They are well prepared and we everyone used uh, the big database to talk even across countries that how I see in the 10 years mm -hmm. and for the seed sector, how can we understand the demand of the, the consumers 
Uh, how can we be more uh, innovative in terms of uh, you know the producing the 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 new uh, varieties to support uh, you know to add like a nutrition? I see that food should be should be the medicine, you know, in the next ten years. So I'm looking forward to see such technology that we do not need the uh, antibiotics, we don't need a vaccine, maybe. Perhaps uh, fruits or some kind of leaf or even herbs can add more kind of the those kind of bioactive for for the for the human. I think what I would like to see in the next 10 years is we cannot avoid the fact that we will have small holder farmers anyway in in Asia, right? But I would love to see that more and more uh, young generation go into the food production, even in the city, by using the high technology. So, so that's kind of you know, that's how I I see. That was Dr. May Cho Choi from EPSA, Asia Pacific Seed Association. Now we hear from Dr. Ola Rodera Romero Aldemita from ISA. Uh, when I started with ISA in 2007. And from then, I was already hearing BT rice from China. And uh, and then succeeding years, we see a lot of studies on rice. We have uh, nutrient-efficient rice, so tolerant rice, submergent rice, and still it's not in the market. So I'm hoping that with golden rice being approved for commercialization, and uh, hopefully it will be at the farmer's hands by the end of the year, it could be this is, could be the eye opener for our researchers to pursue it, to make it, uh, to seed increase it, apply for commercialization so that it will be there. You know, the, the Asian region is the highest rice eating part of the world, and um, rice efficiency is still a problem. So if um, GM rice with different traits or modern uh, products of modern biotechnology being, be it GM or genome edited, it will be a dream come true if it will be available in 10 years. That was Dr. Ola from ISA. Now we hear from Timothy Lowe with USEC. I'm looking at a 10-year time span. Um, I, I would I would have looked at it at a shorter time span, but with COVID, I think the next couple of years, the, we're going to be playing catch up. I think you're going to get a tremendous amount of economic activity that you know really need a lot of things ramped up again. I think within this 10-year time frame, I think the food and agriculture value chain will make significant progress towards uh, sustainable food production and consumption. And of course, this is this is in one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, we already see that happening right now. I mean, it's already going on. This increased regulatory framework is already, it's being developed, perhaps not in a lot, many countries. In some countries, it's moving a lot quicker than others. And basically to ensure the stakeholders, the businesses in that country are meeting environmental, social and governance requirements, right? Uh, we already see that. Um, the other thing is there is this tranche of funds available to for for sustainable businesses you know it, it it's really from a business perspective it's business critical if if a, if you are a company that's looking for you know investors if you're looking for a company that wants to progress and you need funding you need investors if you wish to gain from you know that recognition of being a sustainable concern in the industry uh, you need to make that pivot you need to make that change if you have not already done so 
And then, of course, there's the, the innovation and technology that we talked about and the transfer of information and knowledge and information. I think it's going to accelerate. I think we are we're living in this period of time where the, the, the speed of information, the, the pace of information and technology transfer is unprecedented. So I think it's going to really accelerate. And I think it will be, it will be there. It will be made available for businesses and industries to become more sustainable, to develop their own sustainable pathways if they choose to do it. That was Timothy Lowe from USEC. Now we hear from Mei-Ying Chuk from Save the Children. So projections are not really my forte. But, <laughs> but one thing I'm quite optimistic about is um, industry collaboration in the near and medium term. So I'm talking about um, collaboration across the food and ag value chain um, amongst peers, as well as amongst other stakeholders, um, such as other funders and governments. I mean, I'm sure you know, Duke, like, you know, there's already a lot of collaboration happen happening now. Um, for instance, like um, the education initiative led by the J uh, Jacobs Foundation with the cocoa sector in West Africa and here in Southeast Asia, the palm oil sector, I would say, um, you know, they collaborate quite a lot. Um, but there's still, I think, a lot of uh, cautiousness and risk averseness. Um, but, you know, with the, the legislation, like um, the expected EU directive on corporate due diligence coming, the need to collaborate across the value chain will be stronger than ever. And basically, companies will be compelled to do so because of the complexities of supply chains. Um, we, Save the Children, are currently convening a consortium of companies who want to work together at a pre-competitive level to address child protection and child well-being issues in their smallholder communities. It's still early days, and there's, of course, you know, the expected level of caution. But I'm really encouraged by the participants' eagerness to find sustainable and scalable solutions together because the problem is really too big for one organization to handle on its own. I, I hope that through also this desire and need to work together, you might be seeing more and more of um, innovative uh, financing solutions, such as uh, development or social impact bonds or impact investing. Yeah, hopefully we see this in five rather than 10 years, uh, and hopefully I'm not uh, overly confident on this. That was Mei-Ying Chiak from Save the Children. Now we'll hear from Dada Makudo with the ASEAN Climate Resilience Network. Yeah, well, Duke, there's often like an emphasis looking at long-term strategies, right? But then we are also then looking at short-term what we are doing now. And in fact, Duke, I think that our experience with the pandemic COVID-19 in which we saw quick mobilization of government to respond to this uh, crisis. This provides a model of how we should also respond to climate change in, in the long term, because both short-term uh, response and long-term response to pandemic and to climate change draws parallelism. And so I would like to actually share a picture. This is a visioning exercise of in the long term and in corresponding to the 2050 pledges that the government want. What do they want to see? Governments and then representatives of stakeholders. What do they want to see in 2050? So in 2050, when their climate pledges have hopefully been achieved, what they wanted to see, these are not final and not 
formally endorsed, uh, but there are key phrases that we can be guided. We wanted to see resilient, low emissions Asian agriculture that's biodiverse, pollution-free, and an agri-food system that provides healthy and nutritious food for all by 2050 in Asia. Then we did an exercise with this picture of 2050 to 2040, what do we want to do? 2040 to 2030, what do we want to do? But then the most recent, 2030 to 2022, what do we want to do in these next 10 years? You have asked me in a, quite a short time in the next 10 years, what do we want to do? Well, we wanted to be more engaged with key stakeholders, meaning private sector, academia and research, government development partners that has the technical know-how to do this and work with the farmers or producers. These are the key stakeholders. And why do we want to engage with them more? This is to activate the key drivers of change that will bring us to the vision in 2050. To activate the key drivers of change, we see government policy as an enabler, opening up of finances, looking at technology and innovation and continuously looking at increasing awareness and education. So Duke, I know you asked me to um, make it fun and light as uh, the last answer to this last question, but it's kind of serious, right? But, but there's an enormous work to do. And so in the next 10 years to answer your question, it's really engaging in such a way that government policies are crafted to bring us to the 2050 vision. Financing is more open. We really had to break down the doors of the GCF as well as to really attract innovations from the private sector and establish more PPPs and really entertain as well innovative ways of approaching an agri-food system and continue to work on awareness and education. I think so many stakeholders are out there doing this now. What we need is to coordinate our effort so that we all know it's contributing to 2050. And I think that's the task at hand, Duke. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 